and welcome back to another episode of the Cardboard Herald, my chance to talk with creative gamers and game creators. And today I am joined by Nick Brockman of Leader Games, a graphic designer and game developer. Welcome to the show, Nick. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jack. Yeah, this is cool because I am going to grill you on what any of these terms mean here and I have a Perfect. pro to answer the questions. Yeah, I'm definitely an expert. <laughs> yeah, so I know that with a lot of game companies you have people who are wearing a ton of hats. You have graphic designers who happen to be game developers. You have marketing people who happen to be designers. Were you hired as one or the other at Leader Games? Um, so when I was brought on to Leader Games, um, it was in like 2018. Um, and how it worked actually was I was brought on um, just as a graphic designer, um, even with the context that this it wasn't even potentially a full-time position at that point. Um, they just needed somebody who could help them finish uh, Vast the Mysterious Manor. Um, so at that point I was brought on, um, I was working at a call center at the time, um, where I did tech support for hair clips or for, uh, for great clips. Um, so at the, when, whatever the opportunity was, when they said, you know, we could bring you in to work on this, you know, who knows about the future of it, but right now we need somebody to work on this game. I jumped at the opportunity. Um, and that eventually just transitioned into, um, talking and working with Colmore and, um, he kind of started to train me on development as we started to finish, uh, Vast. So how did they find out about you? Was like Patrick Leader talking to someone that was like, yo, I know this guy who does tech support for great clips and he would be perfect <laughs> for your board game company. Or did you like volunteer uh, at conventions? What, what's the connection? Um, so I actually was, so when I was in college, um, there's this great gaming club organization now actually um, in Minnesota called Glitch Gaming. Um, they started out just as a little video game and like board game club. Um, now they... They sponsor, they like publish video games and stuff. They've really blown up. Um, but they were super helpful always for finding people to find positions in gaming. Um, and I was just subscribed to their newsletter. And one day, just it came across that, you know, leader games, graphic designer, um, looking for a position. So I shot my stuff in, um, you know, as quickly as I could to, to try to get the interview. Uh, I talked to Patrick, I think, pretty quickly. It was probably about a week later. Um, then... They actually, this is the funny history of it, so they actually brought um, on a different graphic designer onto staff um, originally, uh, who they had there for a couple weeks or so. Um, it wasn't that things didn't work out with them or anything, it was just that they um, they were working a different job and also doing the part-time at Leader. Um, and the job that they were working, they got an elevated position there, so they were like, oh, I'm going to go continue to do more stuff there. Um, and then they hit me back up and they were like, okay, hey, Nick, um, now we really need somebody because, you know, not in a bad way, but our graphic designer just left and we need to get this game done. Um, so I came in, it was, they called me on Friday. Patrick offered the job. I told him, I need, I said, give me, give me an hour. I'll get back to you. I talked to my girlfriend. Um, and then after that, I called my boss at the call center. I told him that, hey, by the way, today's going to be my last day. Um, and then Monday I started at leader games, <laughs> not even giving two weeks notice, man. Oh. No, it was, bad. I know, I know, no, if, oh, <laughs> we, don't, we don't need to talk about the call center, but it was, I don't regret it. <laughs> I bet. I bet. I, I imagine you aren't the only person who dreamed of just dropping that notice within one day. You're, you're at leader games now. And so you, you had that trajectory graphic designer and then also doing game development. I think a lot of people may not 
actually know what a graphic designer does for tabletop games. I mean, I, I imagine there's a whole slew of people out there who just assumes the illustrator is the person who makes every visual component of the game. So what is the distinction between you as graphic designer and, say, Kyle Farron as the head artist on a project? Totally. Um, great question. Um, you know, if my dad's watching, hopefully this can finally become clear. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so um, uh, mainly what my job is, is it's just communication of all other visual information in the game, which sounds so generic at times. Um, but pretty much any written text is being laid out by me. Any graphical elements you see, um, color choices and things like that. So this is actually where things get a little interesting. Having Kyle on staff. As a full-time artist, he actually has a bit more of a say, or actually a lot more of a say, into graphic stuff. Like for Oath, for example, color palettes and things like that are all Kyle choices. Um, so the, the areas get a little hairy there. But when it comes to layout, what the map's going to look like, where are we putting text, um, things like that all fall onto my desk. Um, and when I originally started, it was very much more about um, Patrick would you know kind of you know work on a rules document for the morning couple hours or something and then he'd come to me we'd sit down powwow for 30 minutes talk about what he needs made and then i would go ahead and make those assets for him so in the prototyping process for patrick i'm kind of his his graphic hands if you will um at least that's what i was a lot more at the beginning patrick has now gotten he's getting too dangerous an illustrator actually i, I need to watch out <laughs> for my job <laughs> um but yeah it's it's a lot of that so often it's about um usability and stuff like that. So I care a lot about hierarchy, how is information being communicated, um, how are people interpreting things, um, kind of all that stuff. As a gamer, can you think of the first time that you became cognizant of the graphic design in a game that you were playing? Oh, man. Um, it was probably actually when I was playing. So my whole, my biggest gaming history is Yu-Gi-Oh, um, the competitive card game. Yeah, played it for, for years. That was all of my high school, a ton of my college, um, competitive Yu-Gi-Oh. And yeah, I think it was at some point, maybe, I mean, I was in high school, a lot of people were sold if you were like an art kid, I like to draw and stuff. They were told like, hey, you should probably do graphic design though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so I was kind of in that boat. And then I, I yeah, and I was, I was playing cards and I realized, I was like looking at it, I was like, I mean, like Konami, they, somebody's doing all of this. Mm -hmm. Somebody's making all of this happen. Um, and so like at, for one, at one point, my, my absolute dream job was to work for Konami. That was like end goal card layout for konami which i i mean looking at it now would be laying out a lot of text um but i mean at the time like that was that was the, the dream yeah i think the first time that i noticed it was with a ccg as well i think magic switched its format around the time of mirrodin i want to say like i'm no magic historian and while i've bounced in and out of the game like that was one of the first times where they made a dramatic shift on the template and i remember thinking about it like this is an artistic decision, but it's more about how they're presenting the the cohesive product rather than the actual illustration, which is the little window box on the card. Right. And yeah. From then on, I started thinking a lot more about how information is being presented in games. Now, can you kind of give like an example of, say, with root underworld or with even vast and mysterious manner of a decision that you chose to do something which is probably a lot more helpful for the end user where you sure. could have made a different decision that would have probably had dramatic ramifications 
Sure. Um, the a couple that come to mind for me right away are um, the player boards in Vast were one of the largest like things I was tasked with doing when I was brought on. Mm-hmm. Um, a little bit of context here also is I was a fan of leader games prior to working there. There's actually a hilarious photo we found once of they were taking photos of their booth at Gen Con 2017. Um, of people demoing the game and stuff. And if in the background, there's me standing there waiting to buy the game, to buy Crystal Caverns. Mm-hmm. Um, so I already had a very like deep appreciation for Crystal Caverns and what it could be. Um, so getting an opportunity to work on Mysterious Manor and like level it up, if you will, was <laughs> a, a dream. Um, so one of the big things for me was those player boards. Um, I found the player boards in Crystal Caverns always to be a little bit difficult, um, kind of hard to get through and understand. Um, and the player boards in Mysterious Manner, we leveraged a lot of the lessons that we learned from Root. So certainly a lot of the things were, you know, lessons learned from there. Um, but I came in with a context of knowing what my issues were personally with learning them. So things like the uh, the Paladin um, dial, for example, the EXP dial, mm-hmm. opposed to the track. Um, taking that information and cutting it away from the player board about, like, when when are you picking this up to check it? All of the things about when you gain grit are listed directly there. It tracks it hard. Um, it's on the dial. You immediately see, you reveal information to yourself opposed to already seeing where it is on a track. So there's a little bit more of like a discovery element there, which I think is cute. Um, other things like a big moment I had breakthrough with um, Mysterious Manor was when I decided to make the player boards different sizes and shapes. Yeah, um, totally. it might seem like a really it might seem like a small thing, but um, I was sitting there at PAX and we had been playing the game, playing the game, playing the game, and I went to Cole and I was like, "What are we like? What are we doing? They're they are inherently different games. You would never ask five people. You would never have five different games have expect them to have the same player board shape." Um, and that was like a huge moment of like, "Yeah, like let's make these shape the way they need to for that person." Like the skeleton one is longer and narrower; it's a lot shorter. You need the you know you need the line. And for months, sincerely, they were all full eight and a half by eleven player boards. Um, and like I, I can't imagine having not made that change. Looking back <laughs> on it, it seems so obvious now. Yeah, well, I mean, it's evocative. Like having just the different shapes informs you alone that this is an inherently different character before you even start examining what their rule set is. Like it, it feels like there's utility within the the shape itself and an expectation that this is going to be somewhat different than anything that you've been exposed to before you touched that piece of cardboard there's uh i think the thing is uh i have a i have a background also in uh, product design so there's kind of always that looming thing in the back of my head about like what does a person feel like when they're using thing what is that like actual user experience um so that's kind of where that comes from to switch gears to your game development hat Talk mm-hmm. about the the Root Underworld expansion and, like, what is your day-to-day as a game developer? Like, when you sit down to play the game, are you looking for specific things? Or are you coming up with an objective? Or are you just kind of playing the game and absorbing experience, collecting data, and trying to extrapolate fixes based off of that? Sure. Um, so, it, you know, it obviously depends on the phase the game is at. Um, but, like, Root Underworld, for example... Um, people who followed the project really closely or Patrick's development would know that the final crows that came out of that, um, are share very little with the original design mechanically. Tell me Um, about the original design mechanically. I want to know how the Corvids evolved. So the original Corvids were about, um, infiltrating enemy player hands with these, um, black agent cards. So Mm -hmm. you would affect, you would corrupt people's hands. These cards couldn't be discarded. 
or they could be discarded, but they when discarded would give the Corvids points. So they would kind of choke your hand. So when you're doing that end of turn check of, you know, do I need to discard down? You know, you want to be drawing your good cards, but you keep getting bricked by all of these, you know, agent cards that you want to get rid of. But by getting rid of them, you trigger the Corvid scoring. As an Alaskan, I can super relate to just being overwhelmed by a whole host of ravens. So I get it. <laughs> really? Is that a, is that a thing? Man, if you are taking a hot dog out of Costco, you are bound to have half that hot dog stolen by 15 <laughs> ravens. Okay, so so perhaps um, bird-wise, thematically far more relevant <laughs> than we even realize. Um, but so that was kind of the original cut of them. And that the, the design goal was always like spy, mystery, and all this stuff, right? Um, and... As I kept going through it, so one part of my job was simply pushing on that version of like, do these work points, like points wise, gameplay wise, do they work? Do people understand them? Um, big things with Root are, do people understand them? Do they feel unique? And like, does it not feel tacked on? Is it actually bringing something original with the faction? It was passing most of those. Um, what we found though was its actual problem was when it interacted with other factions across a larger board. Um, they were maybe really interesting for one faction to deal with, but a faction like the Lizards, who cards in hand are so much more relevant, or the Moles even, the faction that was coming out in it, um, their cards are so much more valuable. The Agents, or the Corvids, could just bury them in those black cards and effectively ruin their game state. So what we found was we had to find a big pivot that we could do that would still keep kind of that mystery and suspense of them, um, while also you know staying true to the original. So the Corvids now, I mean, the... I, I kind of wear my inspirations on my sleeve, um, heavily inspired by like Jinteki from Netrunner. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, if yeah, anybody's yeah. here, it's, if anybody plays it, it's obvious. Um, but, uh, and, and that moment was huge because we found that they were, so with the black cards in hand, what they were before, there was a lot of rules load that came with them also, like a lot of exceptions of, oh, can I use a black card for this? What happens if you aid with a black card, right? Like lots of questions come up where the new design of the Corvids is so transparent um, it's so opaque. It's a, I put a thing down. It's one of three things or four things. Do you want to guess what it is? Like anybody can immediately understand that tension. Um, because it's just a clean bluff and, and to a person that feels far more like suspicious and mysterious. Um, and that whole, I mean, the Corvids went through 15 iterations. I think there's like a, a post of one of our updates of all of them. I have, I had crows that hung out in the forests and were building nests. I had crows that, like, anything you could think of. Like, we, we they went through so many versions. What about the moles? Did they have essentially what they are from the get-go, or did they go through extensive iterations as well? So, yeah, that's the wild thing about development. The moles, most of them kind of stayed how they were. Um, we had to tune a bit of how the election system worked, um, a bit of the card flow and things like that. Um, but at the end of the day, like, they are certainly far more true to the original than these were. It was, and it's just a matter of like the moles worked in that sense of like it was understood. They were clear, um, and a lot of the feedback we've gotten has been pretty positive about that too. Where the new factions feel like they should exist in the game, um, they don't feel like these like distant weird things. They're very, um, they're just as core as any other faction. A lot of people like even swapping the. WA out for the Corvids, I've heard, is like a good tension. As far as graphic design on Underworld, are there specific choices that you made that users might not actually realize were really important choices that you had to do throughout the process? Ooh, that's a tough one. 
Um, so with roots, it's kind of a tricky one because the a lot of the questions about how things should be laid out had already kind of been solved, if you will, um, with the base game and the expansion, right? Um, certain things, yeah, like the player boards, for example, the layout of those, and it's the reason I think you see so many like, fan factions too, is because the player board is such a accessible way to approach a faction like get your your couple special abilities your actions down the left side um so like player boards wise and stuff it was super clean um not really the a couple of things we added in were just cutesy stuff like we wanted a watchtower um mm -hmm. like that wooden watchtower was like just a fun like ah it'll it'll be better than having a mark on the map and stuff like that um we had to make some adjustments to the uh the play mats because when we were printing them on playmat versions, the you know, like the ruins aren't as bright, so we had to adjust some stuff there. But nothing like too exciting actually. Root was um yeah, very much solved as a as a graphic problem already. Do you ever have to push back on Kyle and be like, Yeah, I, I know you wanna go for this look on this map, but uh, tone it down over here because I'm not getting enough room for the the railways or something or Oh, oh totally. Okay. Most, <laughs> most of my conversations to, most of my messages to Kyle are Hey, can you move this character up like two inches or something? <laughs> um, I, I'm certainly never directing Kyle. He's he's incredibly talented. But yeah, I I mean most of our talk back and forth, Kyle is um, effectively. I'm telling Kyle the pieces that I need, how many there are, roughly what size they should be. He sends them back, and then I go like, Oh, actually, can you move that guy's arm because it's like getting cut off? Um, but he's he's super easy to work with. One of the things that is interesting with Kyle, though, in that regard, that I've learned is. Um, and he's told me this even he'll uh, if I if it is like, oh, that guy's arms are crossed and we want him like doing a point. Um, he doesn't he'll just he just like redraws everything a couple times, um, even if he's like noodling with something and doesn't like it. He's like, ah, I'll just scrap it and redraw it. Um, Kyle's incredibly fast as an illustrator, too. So I, I think that's to his credit of his his iterative process. He's just always, you know, on to the next thing. Well, speaking of next things, I mean, Leader Games has Oath on Kickstarter as we're recording this, and then you also yep. have Fort, which Fort is an interesting project because I, I want to say that it's a design that already existed pre-Leader oh. Games acquiring it, and then suddenly it has been leaderified. So I imagine most of the people who are going to be watching this on YouTube, listening to it as a podcast, are familiar with Oath. We'll get to Oath. Don't worry about it. We're getting there. Totally. Fort, what's the deal with Fort and what's your involvement been on the project? So Fort's, Fort's kind of my baby. Um, <laughs> uh, so the way it worked was, um, so the original game was SPQF, uh, designed by Grant Rodick. Um, I might be pronouncing that last name wrong. Um, he has a couple other published games. He's worked on Imperius. He did, uh, he, he did Imperius. He also designed Cry Havoc. Um, and then the bigger thing he does, which SPQF, well, not bigger, actually, much smaller, um, is SPQF and a couple of these other kind of small box games. Um, I think he describes them as artisanal games. Um, what he does is they're, they're small run games on Kickstarter. He's going to make 500 of them, 600 of them. If you get it now, you get it now. But these games will be completely out of print. Um, SPQF was the first one that I actually got in on. Um, I'd heard about Grant a couple of times. I'd heard about Five Ravens and a couple of those other games being interesting. And I, you know, I was also kind of uh, FOMOing about being on Kickstarter and I just wanted to get the cool thing, I'll be honest. Um, but then I got the game and it's awesome. Um, SPQF is incredible. It's, it's one of the coolest deck builders. It like immediately became one of my favorite games. Um, I've played it a ton. So flash forward, uh, a year at least, I'm pretty sure you could check when SPQF came out. Um, at least a year, probably a year and a half. 
Um, we're at Leader Games, we're in our new offices, and we're just kind of looking at our schedule for the year and seeing, you know, what, what are we all doing, what months. Um, and there's kind of a window, um, not a huge one, but a couple month window where um, Patrick was going to be gone, he was having a child, he was working on larger designs, Cole also was um, going to be working on Oath, obviously, and when he's in that, like, main large design phase, he doesn't really need, you know, you don't want two, two hands in that, so he's doing that large world design, and I wasn't going to be needing it for much. So we started looking at a couple smaller projects, um, and these were prototypes I had made, prototypes Patrick had made, prototypes people have sent us, published games, unpublished games, everything. So at the end of it, I probably had about four games that were like on my desk, um, and my goal was, for those was I was told was take all four of these um, and kind of represent them to us in a way that you think we could do them. Um, we think these are close. We don't think, you know, whatever. Um, and just re represent them to us and we'll see what sticks. Um, after that process, and people watching might even have seen this before, I rethemed SPQF. So SPQF, I was kind of bearing the torch for the whole time. I was like, I think SPQF, there's only like 600 of it and it's really good. Um, so I kept working on that. That was always one that I brought with me. And uh, I actually originally rethemed it as a root variant. Um, people who know SPQF would know it's, I don't know what it stands for. It's some Latin thing. Um, but it's some about forests, but it's animals in a forest, right? It's anthropomorphic animals at the end of the day. That was the theme of the original. Maybe just making it root made sense. Um, so I, I redid all of the icons for it. I kind of made a reference sheet. I made a little player aid, redid all the graphics, and then presented it to the team. Um, I mean, I did that with all four games. Um, but then that one was the one that stuck. Um, everybody liked it. They were now sold on it after me doing that. We then talked to Grant. He was super excited to get it published um it's he said it's you know he thinks it's one of his best games he you know again only 600 made nobody could get it so we picked it up signed a contract with them and then it was put onto my desk for like lead development um and then it was kind of when we did all of like the theme change and stuff like that and a lot of our larger decisions and what's the like critical compelling element of this game that made you love it and, and you're hoping is going to be a big hit for leader yeah, so, oh, it's so cool. <laughs> so uh, how it works is um, on your turn, you're only ever going to play uh, one card, and you're going to play that one card into its actions. It's a deck builder game, context. So you play one card, and you could modify that card with cards of the other suit to make that effect better. Nothing too crazy yet. Uh, first cool thing, the cards have two effects, and the top action you're always offering to everybody else at the table. So let's say I play a squirt gun action. If you on your turn, or not on your turn, on my turn, have a squirt gun, you could discard one to also take that minor action. So it's an interactive deck builder, which is already awesome because deck builders are super solitaire. And I remember I was immediately impressed by the fact that on everybody's turn, you care about what other people's decks are and what they're consisting of because you need to be able to follow their actions. Totally. And then the, the absolute best part about it um, is at the end of your turn, any cards that you don't play get discarded into a public trade row. Um, in Fort, it's called your yard. So all of the kids that you don't hang out with go out into your yard to see if anybody else would like to hang out with them. And at the end of other people's turns, they can recruit from the park deck, which is like the regular main deck, but they also can recruit from enemy yards. So there's it's like this very organic living market of cards where you know your best cards are being taken by your opponents. You need to make sure if your opponent gets a really powerful card of one suit, you might want to also get in bed with that suit so that you can start copying that action. Um, it's a it's just like the most interactive deck builder I had seen and I the the deck building is such a I think it's such a tried genre at this point. There's not a lot of people doing new stuff and it was it's such a breath of fresh air if you if you like card games, which 
I obviously do. <laughs> you're not kidding about this being your baby. Like, I think you're on the verge of breaking out your wallet and showing pictures to me of this and being like, yeah. I mean, I, I, other deck builders are fine, but mine is really gifted and it's really coming yeah. along. No, I, I mean, and I mean, this is all all credit to Grant. Like the the original design, like I, I I got to I had to do some development for it. I made some graphics changes, some slight rules changes, added some different stuff, changed a little bit of scoring. But that core system that that drives that game, the cards with two actions, one's public, one's personal. Your hand goes out to your trade row. This is just, I mean, the original design sings. Um, well, tell me about the actual development that needed to happen. Like, what are some of the choices that you made as a developer that you felt would make it a more viable product mm -hmm. for a leader's audience? Or, like, what went into you taking this game that you had already fallen in love with and change it to be a game that you guys are going to release? Totally. So the big things were, um, it was a lot of, it's kind of why why I think Leader Games appreciates my position uh, as being both graphic designer and developer. Um, one of the big things was the icon system in the original game is a little bit hard to get through. Um, I, I think it works, but I play a ton of games and I've played SBQF a bunch, but it's a it's a bit of an odd icon system and some of the choices aren't you know the best choices. Um, so the first thing was simply I, I redid the entire icon system. Um, the entire game is like icon based. Your cards that you play just have icons to explain the actions. So the first and most critical thing was, and I, I mean, my driving ethos for the whole thing I told people was, if it can't be explained in an icon, we can't have a card doing it. Like, it, it, I, I don't, at, at, at the core of this right now, I, the, the thing we need to get out of this, because that core flow is so good, if people are checking the rule book to be like, oh, what does this card do? And what does this card do? Like, you, you lose that quick, speedy, like, one card, follow, 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 hand goes to trade row, you play a card, follow, 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 my hand goes to trade row, which is like, that that quickness of it is what really drives people. So being able to like get to that was huge. Um, and then small things like the uh, I changed a little bit of like end of game scoring. I added some um, some like upgrades and private objectives that would just you know spice it up a little bit um, because I had actually cut some of the more complicated cards. I still wanted to keep that like crazy cool powers in. Um, so I piped those into like unique abilities that you unlock throughout the game to kind of take off that overhead of like being presented with like a wild card that you'll never understand. Well, it seemed like smart choices. And it seems like it's going to be a, a really different game for leaders lineup. In some ways, it kind of feels like it harkens back to some of the pre-Vast games that Patrick Leader was working on back when he was like a PMP designer, working mm -hmm. on all of those uh, print and play contests on BGG and stuff. Yeah, but, like, uh, like Trick or Treat and Severance and stuff, yeah. Yeah, totally. Hey, you know... We're going to get into Oath next, and I know <laughs> that in Oath, of course, this is Cole Worley's next game, right? And that, that's a big deal, and it made me think about something. You seem like a really confident dude. You seem like you are very talented. You bring a, a ton to the table. On the other hand, Leader Games has Kyle Farron as an illustrator. It has Cole Worley, who is like the grand poobah of game design right now, right? As Patrick Leader, who is kind of seen as like a, a visionary in the indie publisher world. I mean, even Gates Dowd is someone who was taken from another company because it was like, you are so good at what you're doing. I know that you've, every team that I've ever been a part of, even if I bring something to the table, there is certainly some imposter syndrome, like, how am I surrounded by so many talented people? 
do you ever have that and how do you deal with that um so definitely um the i mean i think it's going to hit pretty hard when when fort comes out um uh -huh. that i'm like i'm like even ready for it um but i mean cole and and people i think people know this if you've met him cole is one of the most modest one of the smartest and most modest people i've ever met totally um, it's it's, un, it's unbelievable um and, and same goes for patrick like these people are they've taught me so much i am you know like i've said i i come from a background of graphic design product design and card games so there are certainly moments where i am out of my depth in game design content or or writing or reading that cole has done um but the the genuineness that like Cole and Patrick present to me about how my ideas always are treated on the same level as theirs. And I, I found that very early. Um, and it came from, I think, a bit of like m me being willing to actually like say no to Patrick. Mm -hmm. And I and I I early on kind of wanted to find that comfort because I knew that's like where my goal always when I started working on games was to make games for as many people as possible, as good as possible. And like when Patrick would come to me and be like, oh, I think we should do it like this. Like, I think after me a few times, it only took him to realize like, oh, he he also just wants the same best thing I do. We might as well try it. Um, and like that legitimate respect, you know, going both ways has done, you know, bounds for our work. I mean, Patrick, Patrick will give me a, you know, a pretty scrappy, rule book that doesn't have you know maybe not the most laid out and very much trust me just like you know nick i i know you know what i want to get out of this so you know put it on your desk you know talk to me in a week you know show me what you got um cole also um incredibly well read uh the biggest thing for him is yeah just when he references stuff i'm like cole i obviously don't know what you're talking about <laughs> like, you're like oh it's kind of like <laughs> the, the larger one is his his library of of weird history games that i've a genre of game I've barely touched, frankly. Yeah, um, just look at Pax Pamir and you're like, what is going on here? The, the other thing I always say is, and like, this is this is also like, that whole thing is one side of it, but truly one huge part of me is, I, I know some people are like intimidated by Cole or Patrick or wanting to talk to them or something. And like, the thing I gotta say is I'm like, I mean, we've all said some dumb stuff. Like, I, I've been in Cole with some <laughs> development meetings. I say some dumb ideas, some dumb bad ideas. And like, I've heard Cole also like, you know, oh, yeah. we've both we have both heard each other's bottom of the barrel, like say it. And then you're immediately like, I, I don't even just don't even listen to that. Um, so like, you know, Cole is Cole is as human as any of us. Uh, he, he works incredibly hard. He's incredibly smart. But, you know, same amount of the time we are all we're all just messing around having fun playing games. And it's it's appreciated that we all feel that. Totally. And the reason why I bring it up is because the people that I've spoken to at Leader Games by far have seemed like they are happy and they feel supported and they feel like they they work with a degree of cohesion that isn't always felt throughout the the rest of the industry and mm -hmm. you know that's something that i as someone who has been in leadership for a lot of my life uh, a lot of my adult career uh, i've served on teams i've been part of creative projects i've been on all kinds of things and in spite of that that imposter syndrome i think everyone or most people if they're honest with themselves have felt at one point or another the the thing that helps with that the most 
is when you're surrounded by people who treat you with mutual respect. You get expectations. You're expected to work hard. You're expected to do good on the projects that you have, but you feel supported that you're given the tools, the understanding, the leeway in order to succeed and make mistakes and learn from your mistakes. And that more than anything, more than any amount of bizarre niche knowledge bases that Cole has or, you know, successes in the, the industry that Patrick has had or ridiculously fast and quantity of illustrations that Kyle has, it, it seems like there's a, a environment that is full of respect, teamwork, and, and um uh, a drive that everyone is is expected to succeed and supported to succeed there. Totally. I mean, the we we even build our projects in such ways to like try to leverage what we're all best at. Um, I I'm almost I would, I'm almost sure part of the reason I was more trusted to lead development on Ford as a deck builder was given my comfort with card games and the genre. Um, Cole doing Oath, this insane, large system-based game um, with the giant card list it has. He's, he's said the part of the reason he's comfortable doing it is because he has a staff of people that he trusts to like be able to do that content creation. You know, between me, Patrick, the rest of our staff, like he knows getting to 200 cards, uh, you know, 250, whatever it is, unique cards as one person might seem insane. Um, but, you know, we all we all sit down together. I mean, I think on Monday, me and Cole sat down, went through about 30 cards that we're going to add to Oath. Um, things like that. And, you know, just the just the understanding that like we're all we're all in it for the same stuff is huge. Well, then let's talk about Oath. And I know that yeah. development has been documented to hell on this game. And there there's so much information and people are so totally. incredibly interested in this game right now. But I, I want to know from your perspective, were there any ideas that you guys tried that absolutely bombed? Like you you were looking at something that you're like we need to fix something with this game. And one of the proposed solutions that you guys were like, yeah, this, this might work. This is it. And then after a session or two went like, no, that was a horrible idea. <laughs> um, certainly. I think the, the biggest one, and it's, it's come up even a couple times and I think Cole's mentioned it before, but the, there was a combat system, the, the infamous old combat system. Um, if you ask leader game staff, people who play tested it back then, like, we all loved this combat system. It was, it was very interesting. It was a, the brief of it, it was a three-part blind bid. So you would blind bid against your opponent three times in a row, representing three days of battle. Um, it was super cool. It was really interesting. It was really hard. Um, and it also took way too long for a result that was like, you've lost or you won. <laughs> and, it was, and it was hilarious because when we would battle, we were all so interested. Like the two people battling, so interested. It was such a tense, it was such a tense moment between two people. And then at the end of it, you're like, okay, so I win. I take the site. And like, you know, at the end of the day, it was just the, the simple amount of like, rules and amount of time for what the end result is wasn't worth it um cole will talk about like the the root the root dice um being kind of a they were like a a distillation of you know an insane numbers game that he had before that worked and the new oath combat system again which is a, a pool of dice kind of combat system again is emulating what we were trying to get out of that three-day bid but in a completely you know in a different way but i think the three-day bid's cool enough we're gonna i want to want to work on it for something the three-day bit is like good enough to be its own game almost it's very cool well you were mentioning that there's still cards that you guys are working on like on the day-to-day -day, let's say you're going to work 
today mm -hmm. and today happens to be a day that you're going to work on oath like what does that look like is that you sitting at a computer is that you guys sitting at a conference room table is it just pitching ideas tell me totally. what a day of your life is at leader games all right so i get in the first thing I do is probably make my breakfast and then I go to my desk. <laughs> so then once I have my breakfast at my desk, um, what is your usually breakfast? right now? Ooh, lately I've been having, um, oat, uh, brown sugar oatmeal and half a banana in the oatmeal. And then I eat the other half of the banana. Of course you eat the other half of the banana. Well, I mean like, Who yeah, wouldn't? that was kind of an odd. Yeah. <laughs> I throw the other half away. Like yeah. an insane. <laughs> I have a half like a, a banana and then I just take the other half of the banana and I save it for tomorrow morning when it's all brown and mushy and gross. And now that's what we're talking about for the rest of the interview. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so, uh, my insane banana habits. Um, so currently where it's at right now is I actually just have a big, um, a big word document that I'm working in right now where I'm just working on oath cards. Um, this is kind of my, not like my first time, but this is one of the tr most like real times I've had of like doing just design work. Um, often I'm doing development work and those words don't mean a lot to other people, but from my perspective, if I were just going to describe them, for me development is when there is enough stuff there that I am only tuning the things that are there. Mm -hmm. That's not always true, but generally. And then design is like, no, there is literally not a rule written for this. We don't know how it would work, and we do not know the ramifications. Decisions need to be made. Right. Um, so design is far more about those heavy decisions. So right now I'm like I'm in pure design world where it's um, I don't know how other people approach card design. This is how I'm doing it. So if you're curious, <laughs> um, Oath is a super system-based game. It's really open world, and you can do a lot with it. Um, so how I've approached it with I got a really good understanding of what the world's supposed to be like, both talking to Cole and Kyle all the time. There's also a ton written about it. Um, and now I, I kind of approach it in a way of I think of how could X exist in Oath? So like what would paratroopers look like in Oath? That's not a good example because it probably wouldn't exist. What would a poison spell look like in Oath? Could you have trains in Oath? And then like seeing how the system can be expressed in different ways to try to create you know, these new systems um, is, is like – is what I love. I mean, like I said, coming from card games, um, finding ways that you can solve solve problems or create cards that are outs for situations that you know will come up is like is the real rub. Um, planning ahead for interactions that people are going to have is is like what I love. Um, deck building and construction is like my my favorite thing. <laughs> so you take that document, you come up with cards, and then do you just like email oh, yeah. that to the team, or, or what happens? From oh that? yeah, sorry, I missed the whole other part. Um, so yeah, after that. <laughs> So normally, um, currently where we're at, it's I'm, I go to Cole's office. Uh, he has an insane data merge Excel document that will build his whole deck for him whenever he exports it. And we sit down and we just, you know, set aside half an hour and just powwow through literally every card on the list that I have. So I sit there and I'm like, all right, this card is Winged Riders. It's a Nomad card. It costs two blah. It has this effect. Eh? And he'll either currently, you know, I'm doing well, apparently, Currently, just they just usually get typed right into the document. He's he know he has all these insane fast keys for putting the icons in and stuff. So he's just sitting there just hammering them in. Um, and then every once in a while, we you know I describe a card. He goes, okay, so I know what we're trying to do with that card. Can we think about how it's not gonna, like how that actually isn't going to work? Um, the other thing is right now we're really getting into rules editing with our rules editor Josh. Um, so being really particular about the language that we're using 
And the cards is something that a lot of those meetings are about. Um, we'll sit there and, you know, say the same sentence or, uh, you know, variations of the same sentence back and forth of, okay, so it's a it's a travel modifier before, and it's like, well, no, it can't be before. So, you know, so you're going back and forth on that kind of thing. Um, it really helps having another person there because um, you can just get so, you can get so dead-ended, so dead-ended when you're trying to, you know, find the way to describe something. You just can't find the words. Um, so then I'll talk to Cole. He'll put all the cards in. So let's say he's put all the cards in. Awesome. Um, at that point, usually we're probably playing a game later in the day. Cole's probably going to update a print and play kit. Um, so he's going to go and print a bunch of stuff. And I'm probably going to be asked to cut out some of the cards. Uh, so I'm going to go to the paper cutter, start cutting out uh, 150 bridge cards or whatever. <laughs> um and then, like, after that, we're playing the game, we're talking about the game. Um, my schedule right now is actually a little bit opener because we just finished Fort. So that's usually, like, a third of my day right now is probably working on Oath stuff. Or it's it's generally a third to as much time as Cole needs. Um, Oath is currently the highest priority in the studio. So it's, like, I guarantee a third of my time to Cole, and then if anything else comes up, it pushes up my list. Um, and then I'm also working on development for one of uh, Patrick's projects that he's been working on. Um, I don't know how much is there out about it right now, but... It's a kind of Euro-y style game. Um, I'll let him talk about it more at some point. I'm not sure if he has. But uh, so I'm, I'm working on that right now in my free time. That's just like rules drafting. Um, and then the other stuff was up until about a week ago was just going back and forth with the factory about Fort. So like at any moment, I, I will often have two or three projects that I'm working on on my desk at a time. One of them is usually kind of on the tail end wrapping up while another one is like onboarding development into can this be done? Um, so I kind of have Oath, which is our like finish it right now Fort's like done done and then um the block um as it's called right now by patrick is the the project that i'm like doing active development for as far as oath i i think the one thing that i'm really curious about that that i haven't seen mentioned other places or i've seen a degree of it but because you're talking about coming up with extra cards and how many unique cards are going to be in this deck one of the worries that a lot of people have in games where every card is a unique card in a big old deck is that it's going to feel random. If those cards are exciting and individually cool, you're like, oh, this has a great ability, but that's very hard to balance around. So what do you do or what does leader games do in order to try to reel that in and make the game feel fair and consistent, but at the same time have really exciting properties to every new thing that can come your way. So the one of the nice things that, that we do at Leader Games is we kind of have, because of the way Cole designs, you know, because of the way Cole designed both Root and Oath, there is a bit of kind of silliness you can kind of just get away with. Um, and I mean, if, you, if anybody's played Pax Pamir, they're aware of that too. Mm -hmm. um, some of those cards, depending on the circumstances, are absolutely insane. Um, and in other circumstances, they're horrible. Sometimes you need a spy. Sometimes you just need the card that will convert your loyalty, right? Um, and Oath definitely has that. Um, the way, in my opinion, Oath leverages it really cleverly is at any point you get to decide how many cards you're going to see. Um, meaning when you draw... When you're drawing in the game, you don't just like draw a card. You don't just get a card a turn, and it's just piping into your hand. You just got to deal with what the card you got was. In Oath, you commit to how many cards do you want to see. Um, the little bit of you know random element there is if you hit a vision card, you don't get to keep drawing past it. Mm -hmm. But you know you kind of effectively bid how much you're going to draw. So you're like, I want to see six cards. You get to see six cards from the deck, and now you get to pick one. 
So be it, it puts the onus on the player to start to value their cards um, in, in a way that like most other games you, you won't be doing if you're just drawing. And the other thing it does that's so clever is because the effects are super relevant, but not only that is the, the suit can be more important than the effect of a card often, because depending on the oath condition, let's say it's about popular support, right? Um, you might draw a card that says it's a demon card and you can immediately take over a site. That's a really powerful ability, undoubtedly. But right now the rule is about popular support. So maybe you just want the nomad card because the nomads are really popular and you just need that suit in your in your cohort. Um, it's kind of that shifting balance of what's important at any moment where you you can kind of, you get away with a lot of um, like valuing of cards. Um, card, the, the value changes so drastically even between turns and even more so between games. And then beyond that, when you do even do the drawing, every card that you've seen you now know is in the game, meaning like you can go and get it again. Every card that's been used by somebody else can, there's both methods to get rid of it and retrieve that same card yourself. Totally. Um, like every card in the game can be discarded by you if you'd like, and then you can go to the other place and pick it back up. Um, so between those two things, players get a lot of choice about, you know, what am I actually getting into? Um, it doesn't often try to tell you to just deal with what you've got. I guess the argument to be made is that if you overly polish it to a homogenized state, then you lose that exciting feeling of drawing a new card and being like, oh, what is this ability and how can it help mm -hmm. me right now? Oh, oh, 100%. I've, um, I think I've, I think I've, I'm rubbing off on Cole a little bit in a good way about, um, about card design. I mean, the, the Exiles and Partisans deck, for example, came from a place of, um, feeling like the original deck was too conservative. Um, and it was something I always, I always talked about even. I was like, I think like crafting is cool, but you never craft a thing that you're like, whoa, you crafted it? Like it's, they're solid in the original deck, but the, the, the Exiles and Partisans deck takes it to another level of interest. Um, and then I feel like we're uh, vast and mysterious manner was also a huge um, exploration of cards and powers. Um, when you get into it, the the paladin special abilities, all of the um, skeleton gear, I put a lot of work into trying to make like all of them seem like, oh, I think I can leverage this if I if I do X. Um, because yeah, there's nothing worse than getting a card and it's just like, and I'm I'm not saying none of these exist in my games that I've worked on because I certainly do, but like you want to reduce your like plus one strength cards as, right. as much as possible. Like it's, yeah. Nick Brockman coming into leader games and being like, yo, how do we get buck wild? Yeah. 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 Just like, let's get, let's get buck wild with the cards. And, and I mean, again, it's it, Cole's designs lend themselves to it in a way that's super like, just so helpful. Um, they're, they're system based, which is huge. Um, they have closed economies, which you can, therefore you have, a, you know, a lot about because closed economies, you know, you, there's a finite amount of money, you know how much is going to come in and out, you can like plan on stuff like that. Um, because the systems are so tight, it's actually like a really, no matter how wild you get, you know it's like the system won't break. It, the wheels will never fall off entirely. I think that is a killer place to end this. And this has been such a fascinating conversation. Thanks for coming on to the show, Nick. I really appreciate this. Yeah, no, this was awesome. And when can we expect that Fort is going to be available to the world? Are we doing Kickstarter? What what else is going on? Fort is going to be direct to retail. Um, it'll be available for pre-order from our website first, and it should uh, its retail show should ideally be Origins. 
Um, we'll hopefully be getting a production copy pretty soon. Um, and then once we approve the production copy, it's just hit and print on a whole bunch of games. Um, but the yeah, I mean, Fort's going to be the next leader game you'll be able to purchase from us. Um, Fort will be available this year, 2020, probably around Origins. Yeah. That's so exciting. All right, everyone. Well, go look for that. And once again, thank you, Nick, for coming onto the show. Yeah, thank you so much. This is a blast. If you enjoyed this video, we have all kinds of other reviews, interviews, and recommendations via writing, podcasts, and video here on our channel and website, CardboardHerald.com. Our content is audience supported. So if you want to show your support, please visit our Patreon. Thank you so much for watching. This has been the Cardboard Herald.